Welcome to the Master Intention Podcast, where we talk to top mobile game experts about their experiences running successful games. Uh, my name is Mike, and I work on the marketing team. Uh, this podcast is presented by UserWise. Uh, UserWise is a live ops engine for your mobile games. Uh, we put the power in your hands with easy-to-use live ops tools that help retain your players. Uh, this week, uh, Tom is talking to Kunul Mordekar, COO at Yuzu Games, and they're going to be talking about finding and hiring the right people for your game studio. Um, so when you stop and think about it, uh, oftentimes what makes a game special isn't necessarily the graphics or the gameplay or the plot. It's the people that work tirelessly behind the scenes to make this game uh, reality and make it happen. Uh, so they'll be talking about finding the right people, uh, some of uh, Kanul's ideas on the hiring process and how important good workplace relationships are uh, for success in the gaming industry. Uh, some good tips here. Um, so hope you enjoy it. I'm going to hand it off to Tom and Kanul. Hi, everyone. Uh, welcome to today's episode of the Mastering Retention Podcast. Um, man, I, I feel great today. This is going to be a lot of fun. Um, today, I have uh, Kunal Mordekar with us, who is the COO and head of Yuzo Games in India. Um, mm -hmm. Dude, I'm, I've been looking forward to this one for a while. Um, I, I don't get to talk to as many uh, folks over in the Indian game industry as I'd like to, but like, you guys are doing amazing stuff and like there's so much talent over there so whenever i do get the chance it's great you gotta work out the time zones but uh but I'm, i've been excited for this one for a while um but uh before we dive into things like i always like to ask how did you you know get into games like how did you end up where you are what's your story okay uh that's that's a good question man i think uh it, it goes back when I was a gamer. Uh, obviously, I think most of us start off being gamers first. Oh, yeah. you know, I grew up uh, going to my neighbor's place, uh, you know, uh, sort of bribing him with my video game uh, CDs and uh, or cassettes and getting playtime on his PC because my parents <laughs> never gave me one. <laughs> yeah. And... Uh, I just keep doing that while I grew. Then I was just addicted to it. I would go to a lot of cafes, keep playing. And then accidentally ended up in computer science for my graduation. Uh, surprisingly, uh, uh, at that time, my, my parents somehow uh, read about the gaming industry and stuff. And uh, there, was, there was this, uh, what do you say, a seminar kind of a thing in the city where I live. And uh, he rolled, uh, sort of enrolled me I went there, took up a diploma course in game design at that time, uh, did that. And uh, while I was there, I was doing the course, I had this visiting faculty by the name Rohit Gupta, who was actually the founder of a, of a gaming company called Rolical Games back then. It was just a startup, but uh, you know he was a visiting faculty. He kind of liked my projects and uh, sort of offered me an internship. And that's how I got in. And uh, because it was a startup, you know, you have to get your hands dirty in uh, everywhere you can. Like, uh, because of my computer science background, he asked me to primarily be a programmer and uh, support game design as well. And that's how I got into the industry, really. And from there onwards, uh, being one of the first five employees of the company, we, st we got funding, started expanding, then we needed producers, we needed, uh, you know, more artists, started hiring, just, just growing the team from there. And uh, it, it all, it all just fell into place one after the other. Uh, that was, that was pretty much first five years of my career. Um, and then uh, Nazara, I was at Nazara Games in Mumbai, uh, specifically a game designer there. Um, yeah. Following that, uh, joined Userania. In fact, I was the uh, second employee in Yuzo India. I uh, did not join Yuzo India at a, uh, at a management position. Uh, I, I joined it as a producer. Um, mm -hmm. While I did, uh, right from making, you know, uh, job descriptions and tests and signing up recruitment uh, uh, recruiters and stuff for us, I did almost everything or supported uh, the CEO then in doing uh, setting up the entire thing here, and eventually uh, ended up uh, running the place. So yeah, that's a, I mean that's amazing. Yeah, you you started from all the way up. That, that's fantastic. Yeah. Um, 
<laughs> wow. Um, so you talk about something that is not really, I don't know. I feel like folks don't go over this too much in the industry. Um, and, and I think it might be an interesting topic to, to dwell into first um, before I get to my other questions. Um, sure. and, and that's really, I feel like just about everyone that I've talked to in the gaming industry, everyone has this like secret uh, dream of, of one day running their own studio and like having the full creative artistry to create whatever they want. Um, but, you know, as we both know, starting a studio and scaling it up and recruiting, it's not an easy feat. Um, but I, I specifically want to talk about, you know, you took it from two people to, I don't know how many people you are right now, but what was your process for creating tests? Um, like, did you learn anything? Like, did you create a test that was ever way too hard or, or way too easy or yeah. Well, what's your approach to that? Maybe, I, I don't know, you got different roles. So maybe we start with like your, your programmers. How did you find uh, them, met them? So thankfully I did start off uh, in the industry as a programmer, right? Uh, so I kind of knew uh, uh, the technologies from a programmer's perspective at that time, uh, especially Unity uh, Engine, that is something that is very widely and commonly used in the industry. Uh, I had a lot of experience working on iOS. So, uh, but the time I actually worked on iOS, I'm talking about, um, see to see back then, you know, that, uh, before the Swift and everything came into picture. <laughs> I'm talking about that time, and uh, so this experience basically sort of helped me uh, with, uh, you know, uh, what what are my expectations from a programmer as such when I'm hiring one. Uh, I obviously uh, went online and looked at a lot of other job descriptions as well that a lot of companies out there uh, have on their websites. It's, it's free information, freely available information. You can always go on LinkedIn. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm following pages like Ubisoft, Sumo Digital, EA, I'm, I'm following everyone, right? So yeah. they obviously happen to post their uh, job descriptions up there and you kind of get a picture of, you know, what it is that uh, you can look for, what it is that you should be looking for. And then obviously, uh, you have your own strategy or your own plan, uh, which I had from my CEO then. So I kind of figured what technology we need, what is the experience we need, sort of put that together and come up with your own job description. But it's very important that you are very honest about your uh, requirements and your role. So it's, it's not just about, you know, looking someone up and just copy pasting it, but it's, it's like you can get clues from that but shouldn't be used as it's, you need to put in your requirements very clearly. Uh, the clearer you are while hiring, I think the longer they stick around because they know exactly what they are getting into. Uh, and obviously you have some bad hires. You also have a lot of many good hires that come out of it. Uh, and over the process, you tweak your job descriptions and your requirements as you go. And, uh, once you have the seniors in place, um, they can take it from there. So, gotcha. So it's about hiring the right people that then can go on and kind of build their teams, so to speak. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did you ever, or have you ever? And I haven't, honestly, but I just had an mm -hmm. idea for it. Um, mm -hmm. Have you ever like applied to somewhere just to like go through their process to see like what sort of tests do they have to do? What's their interview process like, you know, just to see like what can you learn and kind of take back? Uh, actually not, uh, to be honest, I've never done that. Uh, but I'm very curious when uh, someone else gets a job uh, or when someone else, uh, you know, uh, someone on my team is moving out and uh, they just we just have a one-on-one -on -one and i kind of try and ask you know do you mind if you share the test with me or do you mind if you could discuss how the interview went you know just use the ad experiences to build on but never really did that myself but now that you say it i think it's actually not a very bad idea yeah but sometimes sometimes they just sometimes they just come to me but i'll have to <laughs> maybe try it myself a little bit too <laughs> yeah 
yeah but but uh i i, I hope uh, we don't waste too much time for the for the recruiter on the other side though. because we also need to understand that the company is also investing their time right uh, this is true yes i i didn't put on my my company hat um it, it's always hard to balance uh it is it is so think about it from that perspective uh, honestly this is something that i struggle with like um there's a lot of developers out there, um, but I, I imagine you've experienced, I, I know that I have, um, you know, there are very mediocre developers like me. Um, and then, you know, every tier up, you know, it, it, it's not like, okay, you add two times and you get something. It's like, it's like 10 or a hundred toms is like a, a step up. And then there's like, you know, a thousand toms, you know, going to step above that. Um, you know, each tier. So, but I always kind of balance it or I always struggle with when do you give them like a programming test to like vet that? Because it is so frustrating when you invest all this time, like interviewing someone and they seem perfect and they say all the right things and they sound great. And then they just can't code at all. Um <laughs> So it's like, okay, well, do we, do we give them a test to try to go through that? But then, you know, are, are the very best programmers going to be like, well, I want to talk to someone first and I want like, I want you to sell me on the company or whatnot. Like, have you found like a good balance or an approach of, you know, when do you interview, when do you test to both balance like the candidate time? Cause you don't want to make them all take tests and stuff beforehand, but you also got to balance like the company time and how long it takes to interview them. Um, to be very honest with you here, I usually try and keep the test as upfront as possible uh, before mm-hmm. I begin the rest of the uh, interviewing process, uh, so to speak. Uh, I would ideally uh, like to put it this way that um, I, if I have now, now I'm, it's safe to assume that I have a team to help me hire here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So then generally what I, what I would like to do is let's say if I'm hiring a developer, I'll probably get uh, one of my developers to uh, take out some time, have a quick chat with this, uh, with this candidate, uh, get, a, get, a, get a wipe check with the person, uh, come back, just give me a brief of uh, how, how uh, things go there. And if it sounds good, then you can, uh, you can always have your HR team sort of get back to them and check if they are open to a test around that time. Uh, because what I really want to do is, uh, use the initial wipe check conversation to sort of give a brief about, uh, my company to the, to the candidate as well, uh, get an idea of the candidates requirements, uh, or, you know, what their aspirations are more than requirements. I would say aspirations, like it's, it's very important you match those, uh, and, uh, the requirements of the company and the aspirations of the candidate should match. And that's, that's when you're like the perfect fit. Uh, if that is not really, you know, a perfect fit or a good fit, then I make sure that, uh, in the second round, when, uh, when my HR is sort of just having a report with the candidate, they mention it, that this is a little different. Um, and do you still want to explore the opportunity? And then this, if, if the candidate at that point is still on board, I think that's, that's when I would want to roll out the uh, test ideally, um, mm-hmm. before I actually, uh, get the, get the senior management involved in the entire process. Uh, but again, uh, it would differ mostly on, uh, which position you're hiring at. Like if you already have your tech lead in position or your CTO in position in place, then the, probably the, he's going to take care of all of this um, with the HRD and you don't really need to get into it. But if you are hired CTO, then sometimes the process is entirely different. You just uh, yourself going around LinkedIn, you know, looking for someone, talking <laughs> to everyone. Uh, and the test at that time probably comes at a, uh, at a very later stage or probably even doesn't, sometimes doesn't even come into picture because at that point, you're uh, you're at someone's resume and their past uh, work experience is enough for you to sort of say that okay, this guy's done what it meant, and he's expected to. Not yeah, hmm. interesting. Of the uh, the tests that you've done and and found most successful, like 
uh, I guess in the realm of programmers, like, is it doing like a hacker rank test with algorithms? Is it like, Hey, build this project in unity. There's really no like time frame. It's, you know, X, Y, Z, like there's a, a lot of different varieties where uh, some people in the development realm are of the mindset that tests don't really do a good job of testing programmers um, because sometimes that stress just freaks people out and they can't actually code in there and you might pass on some really good people. So I'm just generally curious, like what kind of tests have you found to be most successful just within the game programmer realm? Uh, so my favorite tests are the ones that are actually, uh, you know, nitpicking the candidate's uh, brain at his ability to logically think, uh, especially when it comes to, uh, uh, comes to programmer, right? Um, a logical approach to execution of whatever the task is, is very important. Uh, a problem solving attitude is very important. Um, so after a certain point, you're not really looking at what kind of technical knowledge or, you know, what kind of, uh, how good does he understand the technology itself? Because by that time, he's worked long enough to have a good idea of those things. But at this time, you just want to uh, kind of think about things like, uh, just ask a quick question, like, hey, we are making a chess game, you know, the rules, uh, how are you going to go about, you know, making that? You don't have to do it. Just, just tell me how you're going to do it. Uh, just tell me what thought process you're going through. And then if he comes up with the algorithm right there, uh, you can maybe then um, say, okay, that's good. Are there any scope? Is there any scope for optimization? Because obviously you want to save your, uh, your uh, you know, processor from doing too many calculations for a simpler task. And, uh, you know, you just, just kind of keep uh, at it until you can see how far that, that can go, can come up with ideas, or even just, he's trying to solve it. Like, you know, he's troubleshooting it. Even, even if you can see that, yep. and you realize that okay, he's got a really good approach at this. Uh, because nowadays the thing is, the internet has most of the answers on it. Like, you know, uh, and even if you have, uh, if you have someone who is just good at finding solutions and solving problems, uh, they will get you there. That's a really interesting approach. I like that a lot, actually. What about um, if we think about like artists, is there a slightly different approach to how you would, you know, test and vet artists that you're looking for? Uh, for artists, I usually uh, just prefer an actual test of whatever they're going to be like, if they're going to be character artists, then yes, uh, this is the character I want you to sort of uh, model or texture or animate, you know, uh, that's, that's pretty straightforward there. Or if it's a concept artist, then you sort of uh, get your designer to have a design document or something for a character that you can just share with the concept artist and see what the concept artist throws back at you. Sometimes they just surprise you. I mean, they come up with a concept that's much better and like you never imagined it that way, but it looks really awesome. It's like, okay, uh, th that's mind blowing. Uh, as for the animations and stuff like that, it, it's it's quite straightforward from, from what kind of work they have to submitted in the test, you know. I obviously love to see portfolios before I sort of shell out the test. So if the artist is keeping their portfolios updated, that's great. That's actually something I've seen a lot, uh, especially while I was hiring here in India that I had a problem with is that most artists or a lot of artists I came across uh, had portfolios that weren't really updated. So like they're really good now, but the kind of work that I see on their, uh, you know, art station and stuff like yeah. that is, is just beginner stuff. And I'm like, okay, something's wrong. Uh, do you ever find that some artists like I know I've heard of this before of like, well, I've done all this work for so-and-so, but I can't show it to you because of an NDA or things like that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, cool. Uh, one last thing, you know, related to hiring and then I'll, I'll get off the topic, but I think it's so important. Um, you mentioned you want to be as clear as possible for hiring. Um, mm -hmm. 
and likely if you get that right, they're going to stick around for longer. Um, you launched this new studio though. How are you, how were you able to be clear in your hiring for a new studio or in this case, like a new startup, you know, when things might change so much, like, you know, you might have a theory of like, Hey, this is the first game we're working on, but your metrics might be crap and you kill that game four or six months in and you're doing something completely different. So how, how do you keep that clearness? Is it about having like a higher level vision or? Um, so it's it's uh, when, when let, let's stick to programmers in this case, right? Uh, now, when you're making a game, uh, there are a lot of many things to it. Like for example, there can be gameplay programmer. Uh, there can be some some programmers who are working on the UI of the game, or uh, you know, just building pipelines or your uh, your build pipelines, you know, you know, or your resource pipeline. So, uh, or especially when you're a startup, which is starting off, you have one developer who's probably doing everything for you. Yeah, <laughs> you know. Uh, so I think the clarity that I was specifically mentioning is this, that sometimes uh, your developers will have reached a point where they are like, okay, I love gameplay programming. You know, I, I, I want to work on that. I, I don't really like to sit and figure out the UI and make sure that it's fitting on all the all the screen sizes, all my... All yeah, my, that's me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I, I'm not interested in that. I'm, I want to focus on the gameplay. Uh, so this is what I was talking about. Like if you are big enough studio where you can have like dedicated people working mm -hmm. on some dedicated projects, yes, you make it very clear that hey, you're a gameplay programmer and this is what is expected of you. Um, if you're starting off, then you can see uh, you're going to get everything and yeah, that's how it's going to be uh you can sort of give them an idea in terms of your pipeline uh, but obviously uh, like you said uh, in the gaming uh, gaming business um, especially with the data if it's if it's not supporting your game you're going to uh, just pull the plug on that project and move on to the next one so yeah. guaranteeing that is definitely I would say not something that you can do unless you're working on a very big project, which you know for sure is, you know, for, for example, if you're working on the next FIFA, then you, you, you kind of know that the game's coming out. Right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's really good to think about. Cool. Um, okay. I wanted to talk a little bit, like you have a lot of experience as a producer mm -hmm. and I've heard, I don't know, so many different definitions of like what a producer is and what they're supposed to do. So I, I'm curious, like, you know, when you hear that someone is a producer, like, what does that mean to you? Uh, okay. Uh, I very much relate to what you said uh, when, when, you know, thought of different definitions of producer. Uh, but uh, to me, uh, if you are a senior level producer, I'm looking at someone who is able to take my vision for the game or the basic idea or basic premise of what kind of a game am I wanting to develop and come up, come back with a, with a team size, the team plan, uh, a possible budget plan to go around it that says, uh, okay, Konaoji, we're going to need a team of 10 people or 15 people to execute this project. Uh, this is this is the kind of budget allocations that I'm doing for it, and with this budget allocations, this is the time that I'm going to give for it. So uh, there was uh, there was a, there was a talk that I had attended once, you know, and uh, you know, what was said or what was said in the talk was that there are three things or three things you should always remember when you're making a game is there's quality, there's budget, and there's time. And you can always control just two of those factors. For example, if I see my budget is less and I want uh, extremely good quality project, then the time is not in your hands. It's going to take a lot more time. Yeah. yeah. Uh, or if you say that, okay, my budget is really good and I want extremely good uh, quality, then obviously your time can come down. Or if you want the lesser time and you want a lesser budget, then you're going to compromise on quality naturally. Mm. So when I say producer, I am talking about someone who is considering these, these things, 
who is uh, coordinating with the with the management or the person in charge of taking decisions on terms of what kind of project you're going to be working on and sort of come up with the best possible uh, plan team size in terms of uh, okay your budget is x okay then this x budget can get you a team size of y and it's going to take whatever time it's going to take to make it uh, and then making sure that that is followed throughout the process and uh, it's it's obviously there are times when you don't really get it but uh, that's something everybody knows that you have to play around but yes someone who is really good at doing this uh, is is what i would say uh, the right producer in my head yeah for people that maybe want to be producers or or maybe people that currently are acting as producers like mm -hmm. What are some things that you've seen them do or, you know, strive to learn or to focus on to, you know, continue to get better and, and improve towards that senior level producer role? I think uh, when it comes to meeting timelines, one of the most difficult things to do is uh, come up with uh, estimations, especially from developers. <laughs> <laughs> uh, somehow my observation obviously is that any task, once the first thing a developer reads a task, uh, he's going to go, oh, I can do this in two days. And I'm like, yeah. I'm going to take a week for this, <laughs> you know? And, and the producer knowing this, that uh, the, the, you know, the particular team member being so enthusiastic about his work is, and the number, and as you basically progress in your career, you sort of get better at your estimations. And I think getting the absolute right estimations is something that all producers probably um, struggle with. Um, and I think the second uh, most important thing for a producer, I would say, is uh, get your hands dirty in all in all the parts or functions involved in developing the game. You know, like if you if you get a chance sit down and program something even if it's just like an arcade shooter or something get an idea of what programming is uh, you know do some artwork if you even if it's bad it doesn't look good it's fine just do it so that you know uh, stuff that uh, goes on in that space as well and this especially helps when you're working in startups or um, or an environment where you have uh, or you are trying to hire a team side, a team that is uh, not too heavy on your pocket, you know. Uh, so you you kind of compromise on the experience levels there, and then if you have the knowledge that certain things can be done in maybe say Maya or 3D Max or something, you can always guide these team members of yours if required. It's really good. Yeah, I like that. I, I think one of the best things that I ever did was learning to code because now I at least have, you know, a rough concept of, yeah, that will probably take five minutes. That will probably take four weeks. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, you, you can get a rough exactly. estimation. Um, and, and you also will learn that, okay, well, this dev says that will take two days but we probably should add the additional two days in to possibly account for like the two days that they're going to be working on the errors that they're going to encounter before they can even start, you know, doing that coding yeah. or whatever. Yeah. Um, the random things that just happen. Right. Um, that's great. Um, do you think that uh, along with that, like timeline thing that it's important to try to learn your team members to like, you know, a more experienced programmer might be better at, predicting how long it'll take than someone that's say maybe more junior or whatnot. Absolutely. Yes. And uh, what you just said uh, makes a lot of sense because uh, you should also know your team uh, always, uh, and you should be able to make sure that uh, you minimize the friction within your team members. Uh, you minimize the friction between different functions uh, of, of a team. Like if there is a deadline, artwork is required, for the developer to go on and do something, uh, the pipelines are not working, your IT support is off, you know, all of those things. So knowing exactly uh, who's good at what 
and how to keep the uh, you know keep everything running ever so smoothly uh, being a people person is of absolute importance there as well yes that's great how often as a producer do you think you should be talking to people um like should i be checking in on a developer every day every week my artist is it kind of vary from person to person or you know because there's always a balance of like when you come in and check off you might throw off their flow so have you found that there's a right balance i think um, the answer to this question depends on the person you're checking in on um, generally you have your stand-ups every day which gives you a general uh, overview of where the project is going uh, or you have your project management tools which is which are sort of telling you stuff about uh, or allowing you to measure the progress on your uh, on your project so that that's good enough i feel on on the completion status level but on on a more personal level or on a more one-on-one uh, -on -one level i would say uh, it's it's about uh, the vibe with that person like uh, it's it's probably i i might be a developer who likes to talk every day so yeah, why not? Maybe come and ask me a few questions every day and I'll give you an update. Whereas I've seen a lot of artists uh, be like, uh, you know, those who want to be left alone when they are in the zone and you don't want to be uh, talking to a lot. So with them, you want to just take it easy wherever you can. So I think the answer to that question is there is no real thumb rule there, but it's more about uh, getting to know that person and understanding what he is comfortable with and then trying to find a balance with what is required for the ultimate goals of the project and then sort of work it out. Yeah. What happens if you like, you know, you set these timelines and, you know, even when you add conservative estimates, sometimes things take longer or more often than not, as I'm like getting into a project, like, you uncover that there are other projects inside the project that are sometimes even bigger than the thing that you thought you were doing in the first place, right? Um, how do you mitigate when someone is behind um, timeline and they're going to like miss that? Like, have you ever run into that scenario? I think almost every time. <laughs> <laughs> what's what's your uh, what's your process for approaching that? Yeah, how do you how do you help with that? Uh, so. Ideally, I believe that uh, if something is not coming across, you need to sort of gauge the importance of having that in the next update. Uh, or like if you're assuming that it's a, this is a live ops thing or something, uh, then if it is not very critical or it is not very absolutely required, you might want to uh, keep that feature for you know a later time or something. Uh, and just, just roll out whatever you have is ready. Uh, or just uh, give that person the same amount of time, maybe see if somebody else on the team can help him or her or that particular team speed up a bit if that is absolutely important. But at the end of the day, if if the project requires it absolutely and it's going to take more time, you just have to give that time. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, I don't, I don't see <laughs> a miracle happening there, really. Yeah, so it's a matter of accountability. Yeah, but ideally, I would I like to or I would recommend keeping your updates really short ones um, so that you can also measure the uh, the metrics around it much clearer. Uh, because if you add too many things in a given update, you never know what really caused the drop in the retention or what really caused the increase in the monetization. Yeah, uh, you want to you want to be able to roll out smaller updates, check stuff. Again, always have a benchmark rollout as well. So to sort of, you know, match your metrics again against. Yeah. So, yeah. When you come to like rolling stuff out, um, do you generally find that you just roll it out to everyone or, or do you ever try to, you know, have like A-B testing in place and, and hold back groups and such? I think... Uh, there have been times when I've rolled out to everyone and uh, it has been a mess. 
especially not just because of what the feature is, but also uh, technical issues that might uh, that you might face inside the game. So just an interesting thing that I, I, I would like to share is one of our games uh, that we had released was a Ludo game. Uh, mm -hmm. The primary source for its users was actually organic. Uh, we didn't do much uh, user acquisition over it. So what it requires is that a lot of people are naturally um, coming in to your game. And this usually happens when your game is in some ways promoted by the app stores in certain spaces. Uh, like uh, there's, there's a category called Explore in Google Play which is uh, your game showing up next to some other game that someone was browsing. It says you might also like, or you know, showing up in your search bar somewhere. Now, what we observed is that uh, this uh, visibility usually improves when uh, your app is showing the ANRs and the crash rate, which is much lesser than your peers. Uh, so, uh, so you can set up peer groups in your Google Play dashboard now. Um, so, for example, if, if I had the Ludo game, then I would have all the other Ludo games uh, yep. set up as my peers, and I can I can sort of see where do I stand compared to them in terms of my crash rate, my NR rate, uh, my uh, sleep time, wake time, all of that stuff. And yep. if you're really good in that, what you realize is Google naturally promotes the game or your organics naturally are higher. So this one mm -hmm. update that we thought had some really cool stuff in terms of features and we had missed the deadlines and uh, we were in a rush. Uh, so we sort of ended up rolling it out really fast and we sort of uh, thankfully rolled it out to just 99% because I always keep that 1% chance for a rollback. Yeah. Uh, you know. Uh, and what I realized is uh, it takes a couple of days for the data to come in from Google. Like uh, it takes two or three days for your crash rates and ARR rates to start showing up on, on the dashboard. Yep. Uh, they were really bad for this particular update and our organics uh, were down by like, uh, we were getting almost like 15,000 users lesser than we were daily. Uh, like if, if we were getting, wow. uh, and that was, that was huge. And uh, my AOSA team uh, was came rushing to me and they're like, uh, we need to fix this. We need to roll this back. We need to do something. Otherwise, you know, we are losing users really, really fast. And if it gets bad, it takes a very, very long time for you to regain that trust, regain that uh, yeah. confidence with Google and get back up there. So this, this hit that we took, uh, we ended up taking almost four months after that to getting back to where we were and even growing beyond that. So uh, uh, my recommendation, roll out 10%, roll out 20%, check what, how it's going. Um, and this is something, uh, something which is not really feature specific, but more so your app stability specific. Yeah. Uh, and yes, so ever since then, it's always been rolling out and if it is features, I would always um, recommend that you keep whatever is your live version rolled out to, let's say, 50% uh, or maybe 40% of the users. And then if you have two or three other variants that are coming up, uh, you might want to figure out, okay, one variant A is going out to maybe 10%, variant B is going out to another 10%, so on and so forth. And then use the 50% rollout, which is in your current, uh, current build, as a benchmark to measure the performance of the other builds compared to that and then figure out, okay, what's happening. Because uh, what happens is generally your UA strategies may be changing, your acquisition strategies may be changing, right? Mm -hmm. um, and if you, if you say, if you roll out all the new builds and you do not keep a benchmark of your current build and you suddenly change or maybe change your user acquisition strategy from going, let's say you were acquiring users from India and suddenly you have now started acquiring users from somewhere else. Yep. Um, the user behavior is going to be different, trust me. It's not <laughs> yeah. gonna be the same. And if you are sort of 
comparing that with users from india who are on the on the older version and you don't have behaving differently of, yeah yeah behaving differently then you are going to act on incorrect data so my recommendation no matter what happens whenever you're rolling out an update or making changes to your game make sure that your current build is always live in that particular region wherever you're acquiring users from and you're always benchmarking the changes against the same region same build very important so that your data is not screwed. Yeah. That's actually really valuable advice. I think, I think that's, that's fantastic. Um, with this like user acquisition rollout and stuff, are there good tools that you can, or I guess does Google, it's been a while since I've actually had an app on the app store, but like, does Google allow you to just roll out the app to a certain population. Um, I, I know what I've seen some game studios that I work with um, do is they'll have servers. And so like server one, all the players on server one, which is maybe 10% of the overall population or 5% will always get the new stuff. Um, and they know that it breaks more often, but they kind of like it because they get the new stuff before the other servers do and stuff like that. Um, but they just know that they're going to be the ones that kind of get that experimental stuff. And so it's a way that they can kind of roll it out, but you know, their players talk a lot and they're in guilds and, and, and whatnot. And so, you know, if some of them got the new stuff and the other ones didn't, they'd be upset, but because it's within the one server, they can kind of maintain that. Um, do you find that that rollout is something you have to do like on your side, or are there some external tools that allow you to, to roll it out? Uh, so personally, I've always worked on uh, tools that were developed by our own uh, company, like Yuzu had a lot of tools that helped you do this stuff. Yep. Uh, so uh, honestly, I have not explored the market out there really uh, in terms of what tools can, can be used for this. Uh, Google, as far as I'm aware, uh, does not allow you to decide a specific population in terms of region yeah. or, uh, or stuff. Maybe your internal test or your public test, open beta test, uh, you can have a region-specific launch. Uh, but the actual production build, uh, I think you can just define uh, the percent rollout. Uh, you can't really decide which particular region as such. Right. Okay, that makes sense. Um, cool. Uh, thinking still within the realm of, you know, how to iterate on, on things and, and do it well, um, a approach that I've heard some people do is, Hey, I've been working on this really cool new feature, but instead of rolling that feature out just completely to everyone, we're going to enable it as a live ops event for like a week. Um, and then it goes away. We can look at the data you know, if it actually improved metrics, maybe we do fully roll it out. Maybe we kill that. Um, maybe we need to make some changes based on the data before we roll it out as like a real feature. Have you ever employed a, a strategy like that? Uh, yes, actually, we did. Uh, it was again for the same game, uh, Ludo. Uh, we were coming up with this uh, with this update where. Uh, we were basically focusing on monetization and it was uh, all about the vanity stuff. Um, and uh, what we wanted to do was we wanted to sort of come up with uh, with your di dice and your tokens and your which are customized and have like a theme around it, like a desert theme or a Christmas theme or a, or a Diwali theme, you know. Uh, now, what we wanted to test was whether we want to sort of have it like a one-time purchase, like it's out there in the store. You can just come in, buy it, buy whichever you want um, and be done with it. Then we wanted to test whether it's good to time it. For example, things like these, when they're exclusively available only for a certain period of time, uh, you kind of create that rush in your users that, hey, uh, FOMO, you know, I don't, I don't want to miss out on buying this. I don't want to miss out on getting this. So, yeah. uh, so, so we wanted to see if that helps us boost our revenues uh, or whether we sort of do a gacha system around it. Do we go loot boxes? Do we 
have uh, unique root boxes? And then again, do we want to have these root boxes throughout or do we want to launch them only as events and yep. get it out, you know? So yes, we did this. Uh, we uh, tried to solve the, um, like I had my designers uh, discussing this, um, each one coming up with, no, I think our game requires this to be there all the time. Someone saying, no, it has to be a gacha. Otherwise saying that, no, the exclusivity is helping us push revenues. So I was like, guys, just go out and test it. And uh, yes, we sort of launched it to a certain population first, which was just like, it was just there. And you could buy it uh, right off um, the store and whichever you wanted. Like there was no gacha, like five items out there. You like one, buy one. You like all five, go and buy all five. Or then we had a gacha and we had like common, epic, you know, rare. And, uh, and 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 we wanted to see whether people are buying those gift boxes again and again. And what we realized that Gacha was obviously working better for us, and uh, it worked even better when it was timed. Especially, for example, when Christmas was coming, and we came up with a with a with a Christmas themed dice and board and everything, and uh, that that would become like the the epic thing to collect, and then we would have many other things going around it. So what we saw that because it was timed, um, our peers would want to like keep buying those uh, root boxes before they run out of time. Yeah. Wow. Yes, it definitely helps. And a lot of your questions, I believe, should be answered by your players and not by yourself or your team. Mm. Yeah. Are there any downsides to doing this or does this really just come back to the uh the time quality and budget kind of a thing where if you don't have a lot of time you don't have time to do the slow iterative rollout kind of a thing uh it does come back to that but uh my counter to that would be what else would you be doing right unless uh, like for example if you have a game that is working well for you and you can live ops then uh, Take your time, improve the game as uh, as in how you can do it because that's what's working for you. Where else would you spend that time wisely? Is 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 the question. If if you have a better better thing lined up, then yeah, probably spend it there. But if you don't really, then why not invest it here? Yeah. That's great. Well, I only have uh, one more question because we're already like out of time. Um, I feel like we could have gone for a couple more hours, um, but uh, <laughs> I'll be respectful of your time. Um, sure. So because we are on the master retention podcast, I always like to ask, you know, what's one tip or trick or lesson you've kind of learned over the years to keep your players playing for longer? Like, how do you keep them coming back day after day, week after week? Okay. So I think it's very important to realize that different features and mechanics promote different uh, retention and engagement days. For example, certain mechanics will only promote your retention for day one, probably day up to day three, but it's not going to help you beyond that. And then there are certain mechanics and uh, meta inside of the game that can help you probably have people retained until like day seven, but day 14, that's not really going to help you. And probably some that are going to go on and help you retain players for day 30 or maybe even longer. Uh, you know, when 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 I'm talking day 30, when I'm talking, then I'm then I'm thinking right off the bat of my I'm I'm thinking leagues, I'm thinking guilds, I'm thinking clans, uh, you know, just socializing where people sort of make friends and stick around for a longer period of time. When I'm talking day one, I am thinking the best gameplay experience uh, period. Like, uh, it's it's not it's not the loot boxes that you're gonna get. It's not the uh, stuff around it that's gonna keep the person uh, coming back on day one or day zero for that matter. It's it's your game that's gonna do it. It's, it does 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 your user like what you've built or what play you've built for that player. Uh, a lot of times, it also depends on where you're acquiring these users from. Uh, you know, uh, for example, if you're making a word game, uh, no point in acquiring users that like playing Game of War or Clash of Clans. You know, 
uh, you you want to you want to bring the right audience in you want to uh, show them the right creatives while you're bringing the audience in and then measure the metric or your KPI instead. Uh, when you're talking uh, day two, day three, uh, I'm, I'm talking the loot boxes are probably coming in or unlocking is coming in. You're unlocking something new. You're progressing in a story or you're doing something like content is coming, you know, um, that, is, that is keeping you going. Now, obviously, it will be different from game to game based on what genre and what kind of game you're making. Uh, probably if you're making an RPG then, or an MMORPG, then it's all about uncovering new places, uh, uncovering new equipment, facing new bosses, different, yeah. you know, that, that keeps happening. Then, then, then the player's gonna be interested. Or if you're, uh, if, you, if you're talking games like, you know, let's say Golf Clash or something like that, then you're talking about unlocking different golf courses, unlocking different golf packs, uh, unlocking different balls and, and you know, tournaments and stuff like that. So that keeps you going. Uh, but I feel that one of the most uh, or very lessly talked about thing that really helps in your retention is the UI and the UX. Uh, if your players don't understand how to go about playing a game or how to go about navigate themselves in the game, or um, you know like the polish and feel of the game as soon as they see it they're probably going to be gone even if they actually like a gameplay or probably never stick around long enough to figure out your gameplay uh, you know that that's that's yeah. something that uh that that that's something i saw in ludo actually uh we had three different versions of uh, of ui that we sort of revamped um before we went out of the soft launch and into the, into the full launch. And the last uh, update, I, I saw about 6% rise in D1 retention. Just because uh, the, nav the UX was pretty much the same. We just changed the way it looked and colors and the theme. And uh, that just helped us 6% increase overall. So it was, mind-boggling to me as well but hey books yeah <laughs> yeah wow. and i think one other important thing is your user acquisition your marketing team or your mm -hmm. publishing team you know uh, sometimes when you're making a game that is very unique uh, probably first of its kind yeah there's nothing like that out there uh, maybe you want to show your gameplay in your creatives that just helps the user um learn about your game before he is in the game it's it's like your ftv even before your ftv began yeah no i i always say that too it's like and i, I know we're like desperately out of time here but um you know no when, when a player comes in and they just churn right away it's like mm -hmm. okay well it's not like they just churned like they had to see that ad decide that it was so interesting that they wanted to click into the game and then they were so interested by the aso and the screenshots and it looked like it was going to download the game and they actually get into it like you must have truly failed at like delivering the experience that they thought they were getting right like they had to go through all these hoops and steps to get to where they are it's not like you know oh you know they just churned out it's like no we we failed them in some way but uh yeah. this is great i love this well, uh, Kunal, if uh, folks want to get in contact with you about anything, is there a, a good way for them to do that? Uh, my email ID, I guess. That's, uh, that's, that's fine. KunalMordeker at gmail.com. Awesome. Cool. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Yes, it was, it was a pleasure being on your podcast. It was great talking to you, Tom, uh, and I hope uh, informative as well. Definitely. All right. Have a good one. All right. You too. Bye-bye.